Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover.com, the domain company that we use for our domain and for our email. Go to Hover.com and use the offer code CANADALAND at checkout, you'll get 10% off. We are here at the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. This is a live recording at the pilot. Welcome. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) sticks and stones may break my bones but cartoons could destroy me Uh, there is something about silly simple crude drawings that has the power to reduce the world's most powerful people into laughing stocks historically cartoonists have been censored sued imprisoned and even killed our panel today, I think, uh, qualified for the first three. Not yet. The latter, thankfully, at least. <laughs> Not yet. It'll be a bad panel. Please welcome Megumi Igarashi, better known as Rokuda Nashiko. Nashiko. Uh, loosely translated, uh, that pen name means good for nothing girl. Her comic book memoir, What is Obscenity? The Story of a Good for Nothing Artist and Her Pussy was recently published by Koyama Press. Our next panelist used to have a respectable job at the National Post. (laughs) Today he writes Jughead for Archie Comics (laughs) and Howard the Duck for Marvel. Very very little difference, really. Please welcome Andrew Coyne. Hey. Please welcome uh, Chip Starsky, also known as Steve Murray. Oh, yeah, little little applause when I'm not Andrew Coyne. That's amazing. <laughs> Finally, Ted Rawl is an editorial and political cartoonist, an author, a journalist, a controversialist, and a frequent litigant. His syndicated cartoon runs in over 100 newspapers, and his most recent book is Bernie, a cartoon biography of Bernie Sanders. He is ranked number 15 in Fox News commentator Bernard Goldberg's book, The 100 People Who Are Screwing Up America. Please welcome Ted Rawl. <laughs> 
<laughs> this live taping of Canada Land is brought to you by Anthony Edward Perry, Andrew Brenders, Allison C., Michael Healy, Ben J., Paul Fisher, John Rudy, and Eric Hawka. Eric, are you here? Would you please come up and tell us why you decided to be awesome? Because I like supporting independent content creators. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hey, this is Jesse now speaking to you from our studio to tell you that this episode is also brought to you by Hover.com. And what Hover does and, and what we've used them for before we had a relationship with them uh, as our sponsor is that they take care of your domain. Like if you need a domain, you go to Hover and you get a domain. If you want emails at that domain, then Hover will help you out. And that's what they do. They don't try to get you to do other things like a lot of their competitors who, when you go to try to do something or get technical help, you find yourself getting upsold into other packages and web hosting this and security that Hover is just simple and straightforward and affordable, and they're a great Canadian company. We use them. So should you go to hover.com, use the offer code CanadaLand at checkout, and you will get 10% off of your first purchase. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, another great local company, a Canadian company, and our first sponsor ever at CanadaLand. FreshBooks.com is, of course, the small business accounting software that is designed for you, that is super intuitive to use, that is for the freelancer or the small business. Like Hover, FreshBooks is the tool that I use for my billing, for my expense. It's, it's scalable because I used it when I was an independent freelancer, and now I've got a small company with a number of employees. Things have gotten a lot more complicated and yet FreshBooks is absolutely up to the task and I use them for everything. They save me a lot of time and they get me paid quicker and they can do the same for you. Try it out for free for 30 days. When you go to freshbooks.com, there's a 30 day free trial. And when you do decide to become a customer and once you do, you're not going to go back. This is what you're going to use from now on. Tell them who sent you. You'll be doing Canada land a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Let's start, uh, I'm going to ask everybody the same question to begin with, starting with you, Nashko. What is the worst thing that ever happened to you as a result of a cartoon that you drew? Uh, so I guess the first thing, um, the worst thing that ever happened to me would be I was arrested and imprisoned twice. Uh, but without being arrested, um, I wouldn't have been invited to come to this festival or things like this. And I wouldn't be known uh, as worldwide as I am now. So I guess um, that was the worst thing that happened, but the result was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and you were convicted on an obscenity charge, is that correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> 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 あ、でも控訴、即日控訴しました。<笑><笑> 
She's appealing the verdict. Okay. Chip, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you as a result of a cartoon you drew? You know what? Uh, not much. I should probably go. Um, <laughs> you know, I, was, uh, I worked at National Post for about 13 years, and uh, they were actually really supportive, like, despite the faults of the National Post. Whenever they get complaints and stuff from other politicians about things I do, like, they would, they would brush them off and they would support me. But the one time I was kind of called into the editor's office, was uh, I was covering a film festival party at Wicked, the, uh, the, the now defunct uh, Swingers Club. People don't like to fuck anymore. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but uh, so I went and, you know, I covered it and, like, you know, it was kind of a boring party. So I, uh, I, I stripped down and I got into the, the hot tub and I interviewed people from the hot tub and it was just, it was a lot of fun. Scott Speedman brought me a drink, which is, uh, I felt really good about that. And so uh, I, I dripped a cartoon the next day and, uh, uh, there was one panel in it where like, I drew the owner and his wife uh, grinding up against a car which was like on the <laughs> stage. It was like their DJ booth was a car. Very classy joint, I'm going to say. And so I got called into the office. He's like, uh, all right, so here's the deal. Um, this paper appears in schools as part of a program. And, uh, and uh, you drew uh, people grinding. You said they were grinding and you put those little lines. What are those lines called when you show somebody moving? Like, well, I guess they're grind lines in this case. Hump lines. Hump lines. And he was like, That's a technical term. And he was like, uh, uh, Murray, this time you've gone too far. <laughs> and I was so happy to hear that because it felt like it was like one of those like cop shows where he's like, McGillicuddy, you're a loose cannon. Turn in your badge. So he's basically like, you, you have to like not do anything for a couple of weeks and just kind of like, you know, do your regular funny little man shtick and, and, and nothing. Uh, you got went in for a couple of weeks. You got put on ice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, not like ice. Like I still did my regular stuff, but he was like, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you right now. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a kind of a re refreshing thing. And there was no real fallout from it, except for the, the sense of joy that I got, which was, which was nice. Ted? I have so many answers to this question. I, we just don't have time. So I'm just going to go with the most recent really bad thing. I was the cartoonist at the LA Times uh, from 2009 until last year. I did a cartoon uh, about a jaywalking crackdown in the city of Los Angeles. And within two months, the uh, Los Angeles Police Union leaked uh, my old jaywalking arrest records to the LA Times, which then... Uh, proceeded to fire me and then publish a uh, piece in their paper saying that I had lied about my jaywalking arrest in 2009. And when I was able to prove using uh, sophisticated audio enhancement technology that in fact it was the cops that had lied and it was not the, uh, that it wasn't me, the paper then doubled down and published a longer piece, and I am now uh, involved in a uh, massive defamation lawsuit against the LA Times. It's war. They just literally filed a motion a week ago demanding that I give them $300,000 or my lawsuit cannot proceed so that I can guarantee that they will receive their legal fees in the event that I lose the law my lawsuit. And we literally figured out that they did some sort of public record search to find out the equity value in my house. So they fired me, they slandered me, they admit that they slandered me in their own motion, and now they want to throw me out into the street. But there are other stories that really do compare. I, I drew people grinding. <laughs> Nashko, perhaps you can give us a bit more detail about um, what the obscenity charge was about and 
I think that when we think about Japanese depictions of sex, we think about some of the most graphic and specific pornography you know, that I've ever seen anyhow. <laughs> but it's all digitized when you actually get to genitalia. And I think that your work directly kind of took that on. Maybe you could tell us why you were targeted. <laughs> so actually, I maybe don't know why I was arrested myself. <laughs> um, I did the 3D uh, data. I used the 3D technology to, um, you know, scan my manko. And uh, the police are a bit like... Can you tell us what that means? <laughs> oh, sorry. Manko means uh, it's the Japanese word for pussy, basically. It's a really forbidden word in Japanese, so she insists on using it to make that point. So uh, the police are really kind of um, freaked out by new technology. So they, in order to kind of keep a lid on it, they'll like arrest people. And so before me, there was a guy who was arrested for 3D printing a pistol. And then after that, I guess they decided to go after obscenity. What I found so interesting reading about your case is that there were, there were charges about the drawings that you, you've taken molds of your vagina and you've made all kinds of cute artwork and you've made a vagina kayak. There we go. In, in, welcome to Canada, by the way. In, in both miniature and life-size form. And, then you, and you've drawn uh, a comic book memoir about all this, but what they ultimately, the charge that stuck was the distribution of 3D schematics of your pussy. That's, it was the technological... <laughs> Right, and um, I, I was interested to read in your work that they are so clueless about technology that the, the formal police report referred to the name of your website as Crowdfund. <laughs> After you'd crowdfunded the uh, actual construction of the vagina kayak. So, <laughs> just an observation. I want to ask the panel about the power of cartoons themselves to tell nonfiction stories. Everybody here, I think, is a multidisciplinary communicator and artist, and yet the cartoons seem to be some of the most potent format for, for some of these messages. And when we're talking about telling a true story, why choose a medium that is so inherently subjective? For myself, because of the uh, working at the newspaper, they would often go to me for things that they couldn't photograph. So, like, uh, we did a story, myself and a reporter went to a nudist colony, and did a story there, and we're not going to bring a camera. I mean, I did bring a camera. I took pictures of the reporter a lot, but I, I ended up doing sketches, and we told the story in, in sketch form. And uh, there, there are a lot of cases like that where um, photography, which is traditionally used to document the visual nature of a thing, um, just wasn't the best choice. And so cartooning kind of was the way in. Um, the downside to that is the fact that a lot of people will look at the cartoon and go, well, well that didn't happen. It's a cartoon for it appearing in the paper, like I always made sure like I, I documented everything perfectly in case somebody came back and said like, oh, you're totally making all this up. And no, it did. It did. So yeah, that's kind of the easiest way into some stories. It's interesting because I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, before photographs, drawings were how you would illustrate yeah. a true event in a newspaper. It was, and drawings were believed. And then when the photograph came, drawing suddenly became the medium for exaggeration, satire, and... Which is, which is crazy, because photography can be manipulated. Photography, like, not even, like, digital manipulation, but in terms of, like, the cropping of a photograph can tell a totally different story as well. So people always take that as fact, and cartooning is not fact, yeah. and that's, that's really kind of mind-blowing to me. What about you, Ted? Because you've, you've used cartoons for everything from, like, war correspondence to just sort of telling the story about getting harassed by cops. Why not just write that up? I mean, that seems to be... And, and you've, 
you know, you, you write as well professionally. So why, why, why choose to draw pictures where you're going to, with every line, you can kind of convey a slant or a point of view? Well, cops don't normally let you photograph them when they're uh, handcuffing you for jaywalking. Um, it's hard to hold the camera and get a good angle. For the same reason, uh, for example, when I went to Afghanistan to do war correspondency, there's a, a cultural and religious stricture against photography in uh, among the Taliban and among many people in the Middle East and in South Asia and Central Asia. So I often found it easier to... Um, again, draw draw people where I could not. I was not allowed to photograph them, or they would not give their consent. Um, so that just from for practical reasons. But uh, probably the best uh, example of this for me was uh, my book to Afghanistan and back, uh, which came, was the first book about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. It was really the answer to the question, you know, not what what is the U.S. doing there or what does it mean politically, but what does it feel like? Americans just weren't getting a sense from TV coverage you know, of like what it feels like, the, the temperatures, the grit, the dust, the fear, the, the visceral feeling. And uh, with a, I have an extremely uh, primitive drawing style, very abstract. As Scott McCloud has written in his theories about comics, the more abstract your drawing style is, the more that the reader can put himself or herself into, the, into, pl- into that place, less so than, for example, more detailed work like, say, Joe Sacco's, whose work I really much admire, but that's his experience, but it's hard to protect yourself into his experience. I think with my style, it allowed people, you know, people came back and they were like, oh, I could feel the dust in my teeth, um, you know, in, in a way that, like, books that I later did about the same subject that included lots of photos, people did not come away with that same feeling. Yeah. It's funny, the, uh, I was going to say, at the National Post, we had a war artist, uh, Richard Johnson, who, like, he was our graphics director, but he always, like, he was just doing that so he could get to Afghanistan, like, like get sent on tours so he could do kind of uh, drawings of uh, the soldiers and the environment and the people there. And uh, the, his was a case where his stuff was really detailed, but it was always raw scans. Like, he would always do it with, like, pencil, like, and you could actually feel, like, the people and the, and the characters and the situations and his little, weird little annotations of things. And, you know, he, it, it's become, like, his life's mission because it's, like, it's the easiest way to convey the feeling of the situation. You're absolutely correct. Like, there's a, there's a tactile nature to it that's uh, sometimes missing with photography, strangely enough. Uh, just the, the, the feeling of a person observing and translating what they're observing um, to the reader that way. It's sort of counterintuitive, you know, especially if you're not familiar with like Scott McCloud's ideas of, I guess, the semiotics of this, that our whole culture seems to suggest in, in visual communication, more is better. Uh, 4K is better than HD, and, and, and the, the more visual information, if you want to feel what it's like, you should see every particle of dust. And yet... What uh, I think the trend for years now in nonfiction comics has been, Joe Sacco is sort of an outlier. Right. You know, the, the simpler and more pared down. Like Guy Delisle and people like that. Yeah, yeah or yeah. like Spiegelman's Mouse, like like all the stuff that kind of reduces it, you know, to uh, like the most raw symbols. For some reason, that seems to put you in, in, into most kind of direct contact with the subject matter. Uh, and that's a hard idea for people to get their heads around. I mean, does, uh, you want to reflect on that? Is, have you thought much about that? Well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just that it happens to be completely true. 
So it's just one of those things that if you observe it uh, and you just, you know, I've been doing this for most of my life and, uh, you know, I, I, I do some work in a more realistic style and other works more abstract. The abstract stuff just works better for that exact purpose. You know, I mean, if think about like peanuts, very simple drawings, right? And uh, but you can, you know, you get a sense of place and feeling. Like you can feel like Charlie Brown, even though, of course, you know, he has hydrocephalitis or something. You know, his big circular head doesn't look like a human being at all. And what's that thing on his forehead? And 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 you know, but somehow you can empathize with him. Um, you know, uh, I, superhero comics, which are hyper realistically drawn, I have no visceral feeling whatsoever for those characters. I'm not ever going to be Bruce Wayne in any world. You know, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, especially financially. Yeah. Nashka, this is sort of um, something that I, I, is evoked when when you discuss in your new book the power of cute. That you're talking about the taboo about graphic depictions, and and you yourself are, are telling a story about. Uh, really horrendous things that happen to you, being thrown in jail and being persecuted and being attacked in the media, but you draw it all in this delightful, cute style. What is the power of cute? So um, I think like with something like cute or, you know, that idea of cuteness, you can, it's something you can laugh at, you know, you can fool around with cuteness. It's very like lighthearted. And, you know, to laugh at authority, like, um, I think what the authorities fear the most is being laughed at and being made fun of. Mockery, I guess, is sort of at the heart of this, that drawing a caricature of somebody, reducing them to their essence or what you feel is their essence, seems to be, it cuts deeper than an editorial might. And it's, uh, it packs such a visceral, immediate punch. Talk to me a little bit about this weird place. It's so strange that in in a newspaper so concerned about these formalities and, and absolute accuracy, there's this little special spot where you can draw somebody with like jagged teeth, biting babies, blood running down their chin. Like you can make the most outrageous statement about somebody. And if you were to just sort of describe that in words, it would not be allowed in the newspaper. Well, that used to be true. Um, the United States uh, has become um, really almost a cartoon-free zone. Uh, many newspapers don't run them at all anymore. When I got into this uh, in syndication in the early 90s, there were over 400 staff cartoonists and many hundreds of freelancers, uh, probably close to about 1,000 politically-oriented cartoonists in the U.S. That was already way down from about 2,000 uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, today, there's fewer in the U.S. than there are working in Iran. Uh, we're down to about 18 or 19 or 20. And I think really? we will see the end of political cartooning in the U.S. within the next 10 years. It's uh, basically been targeted as something that needs to be abolished uh, by newspapers. But, you know, it's a circulation driver. Readers like them. That's how they got into the paper in the first place. It was always like a free fire zone, and it's a, they're a holdover from a time when newspapers were brazenly political. Uh, in the U.S., um, there were newspapers with names like the Arkansas Democrat, because it was a Democratic Party-oriented newspaper. Uh, there were, you know, other papers were called the, the News Republican or whatever. The sort of simulacrum of objectivity that emerged in uh, sort of the post-Vietnam era where the press was supposed to be uh, supposedly objectively truthful uh, started to, like, leach into the editorial pages, and people started saying, well, cartoons aren't fair. 
It's like, no, they fuck as hell aren't. And, and they're not supposed to be because they're not any good when they are. So they're basically been kicked out of newspapers and they're obviously online now. The problem in the U.S. isn't that there isn't good work being done. There is. It's online and it's great. The problem is an economic model that would sustain to pay someone enough money to be able to dedicate most of their week to thinking about current events and politics and then commenting on them, that we're struggling to figure out uh, in a big way. Um, there's you know fits and starts. The internet's just not doing it yet, but maybe someone's going to figure it out. But at this point, we're like uh, you know buggy whip makers or whale bone corset makers. You know we're we're on the way out. And it's tricky because newspapers in general they kind of rely more on jack of all trades people. Like my experience at the Post was, you know, okay, I'll do cartoons, but I'll also do graphics and I'll also design the paper and also write a column. And like, so the idea of like somebody that does one thing, there are only like three or four, like, you know, kind of major columnists that that's just kind of their beat, but everyone else is kind of like, you know, at the Post recently, like, I don't know, they, 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 they lose a couple of reporters in a couple of sections instead of hiring two reporters. They hire a reporter that reports to both sections now. So it's like, okay, you're a financial reporter, you're also an arts reporter, and you're also a general reporter. So it's, it's not even just like cartoonists, but it's like everyone is kind of like being tasked with doing multiple things so you don't have specialists anymore. Sure. Know? But your role at The Post was sort of an interesting illustration of that. Haha. Uh-huh. Um, Good job. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I mean, um, because, I mean, listening to Ted talk about what's happened to the editorial cartoon, I, I think that some context has to be provided that some of the wounds are self-inflicted and and that uh, political cartoons on the editorial page have been less and less cutting and they've all sort of adhered to a one rigid style and I think that they've lost their influence and and you don't have that same kind of celebrity. Some of the work that was done just from a cartoonist standpoint, the draftsmanship of the work 50 years ago is so much greater than what we see now. And then Steve, you sort of uh, created for yourself or evolved a role at the Post where you were not in that section. Your stuff didn't look like a traditional editorial cartoon, but you were doing satire about news events through like infographics, through diagrams, through different types of cartooning. And it seemed like for a second that like, oh yeah, there should be a guy who draws at a newspaper or a person who draws at a newspaper and makes fun of people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in that black and white, you know, comment section page. Well, I also, I, I don't know how much it's changed since I left, but like during my time there, there was a rise of what they kept calling alternative forms of storytelling. Uh-huh. They were like, oh, just just writing doesn't do the trick anymore. So they wanted new ways of telling the stories. And, you know, that's kind of reflected in the fact that every reporter has to shoot a video now as well. Um, and so, yeah, I was able to kind of create that as a result of like they were they were scared of the internet and they wanted kind of new ways of showing things and they also wanted to fill space in the paper because they had less content and the easiest way to do that is to have somebody that does both things I do the art and I do the the writing and it's scalable in the paper so just from a logistics point of view like I could like I could redesign a page of a paper uh, at the last second when an ad came in uh, to, to fit the space right like, like it's it's all there's there's so many levels of, of so why they wanted these kind of forms of storytelling and I, I think they still do want them like you know the post still kind of contacts me and kind of asks me you know do you know somebody that can do this or somebody that can do that like like, but, but like there, visually when you left I don't think the post filled that position nor do I think that there's any other paper in Canada that has somebody who does something 
No, no, no. Because I, I don't think the higher ups quite understood it as well. Like, yeah. I think you know, it's it's not a matter of the editor in chief going, "I need to hire that," and then they take the money and they they put the money towards that. The editor in chief now has to go, "I, I want to hire for that. I've got to go upstairs to these weird old white guys who don't understand why they would want to hire somebody who draws and does video and stuff like that." Like, what? Like what? cartoons? Aren't those a thing like Ziggy and Garfield? Like, there's just there's just such a disconnect. And yeah. It's hard. Nashko, I am incredibly ignorant about satire and editorial cartooning in Japan. I, I know about manga and not much more. Is there a tradition of making fun of people with drawings in the media in, in Japan? Uh, is it okay if I say a little more about the cute thing that we were talking about before? Please do. For our podcast listeners, Nashko is holding up a stuffed animal with a leather belt as she was making those points. Um, so I think, like, actually, cute, cute things are really close to us. You know, there's something that we feel really familiar with. And uh, so he, we have this police character. Um, the police made this really cute mascot character. Uh, and, the, you know, he's really, like, the thing, you know, that makes a real impact for me is that um, this character is, like, obscene, you know? <laughs> this character is, like, a pervert. Look at him. Like, he's, and, he's, and this character is just, like, so out there. Like, they're just... The police are putting this character out there very like proudly, and I think it's really funny. So uh, lately, I always bring this peepokun to my events, and uh, I think that like cute has the power to make something scary, like a scary institution, into something that's not scary. Chip, I want to talk about sort of this continuum of. Uh... <laughs> oh man, I don't have any I mean... props. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be like uh, the scale between the most direct form of a cartoon where you like just draw somebody with stink lines coming up from their buttons. This is you. And it's like, oh, damn, that's a diss. And, yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> abstracting it to something like this. Or, yeah. you know, and, and these are all tools at a cartoonist's disposal. You can either make it direct and, you know, risk a lawsuit or, you know, whatever else comes with really calling out the point that you're making. Or you could do something like the glomps. Uh, in one of your <laughs> yeah. recent comics who are just obviously gamer gators and don't deny it. I am not going to go on the record and say that because I don't want to be harassed, but um, yeah, yeah. So so for anyone not familiar, uh, I do a comic with Kagan McLeod called Captara, which takes place in a kind of a He-Man fantasy world. And uh, I wanted it to be the kind of a place that was like free of racism and sexism and homophobia because the main character is gay and I want him to like, kind of experience this world. Uh, but I was like, oh, all the all the bad stuff in that world has to go somewhere. So I created these like Smurf-like characters in the forest called Glomps, just these dudes who were just like <laughs> felt like they're being persecuted in society and retired to the forest. And like uh, the Smurfs, there's just there's no women. Yeah, yeah, there's no women, but they they do uh, drawings of sexy women for each other, um, <laughs> which which to me always seems like a, a weird thing that like straight guys would do to get other straight guys off. And I'm like, well, that's not really straight. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's funny, because I, I actually didn't really think Gamergate when I was doing it. I was just thinking, like, all just kind of general shitty online trolls and sure, sure. And, and dudes and stuff. But, like, as soon as it came out, people were like, oh, I see what you're doing here. And, like, I would actually get a lot of messages, like, about a bunch of different groups. Like thinking, oh, you did this for about these guys. Oh, you did this about these guys. I'm like, no, but it's fantastic that you think that. Like... I don't believe you, but it's interesting. No, no, no. Like, 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 like any, anyone and, and gamer gay people didn't contact me because 
they never see themselves as the villain. Like anyone that like thinks that they're being attacked never sees themselves as the villain. And I, I kind of like that kind of satire where you kind of get in there and like the people in the know are like, oh, I see what you've done here. And yeah. the people that you're attacking don't notice because they're like, well, that's clearly not me with those stink lines coming out of my butt. Sure. It's incredibly effective. But I think it's, it's also kind of Canadian if I can make kind of a, a Canada-US parallel where yeah. you can kind of send up a type of person in a very abstracted, absurdist, like kids in the hall sketch. Yeah. But the American thing is for a stand comedian to stand there and say, I'm talking about Joe Smith, fuck him, this is what I think of him. Yeah. Which I think is what your traditional editorial cartoon is, is, is more of that direct shot. Yeah, and I, I, I like this way better, like just because it's, it's more freeing and... and cowardly and, and yet powerful. The same yeah, yeah, sure, cowardly <laughs> and powerful. That's me, that's me. Good job. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Ted, you were going to say something? Uh, yeah, you know, I think... You know what, fuck you, Jesse. <laughs> no, before you get into this, fuck you. I'm doing a fun little fantasy comic with these little characters, and they can represent anything, and you can call me a coward here if you want. But frankly, fuck you. How's that for cowardly? Fuck you. What, uh, and which Sorry, you- Ted, please, please, answer whatever <laughs> shitty question Jesse's got. <laughs> Which of your many pseudonyms delivered that insult, by the way? (laughs) It's all still me, Jesse. It's all still me. I feel like Donald Trump at the WWE. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, actually, I think, you know, there's also a um, sort of cowardice in just attacking an individual as opposed to, for example, his supporters. Like, you know, if if I'm coming up with a cartoon... Uh, you know what's what's more dangerous? Uh, you know, calling out Donald Trump—he's kind of used to it—or calling out Donald Trump voters, who really are far more likely to come and punch me in the face at an appearance than Donald Trump. A punch in the face from Trump would be nothing with those tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> like a fleshy little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're almost like I'll, I'll try to construct another dichotomy here between uh, the power of cute and and, and what you you do. Mm. Which it seems like there's just no. You're not trying to be cute in the way that you draw. No, I would. I would be far wealthier and have more house to steal by the L.A. Times if I did. I grew up in the '80s, and uh, you know the punk. I was really influenced by punk and new wave and and that that aesthetic. And so I was. I, I always liked a really gritty reality, uh, artistic reality and aesthetic that goes along with what I see as the ugliness of a collapsing country like the U.S. So, and also I lived in New York for many, many years. And so it's, you know, you just see piss and shit everywhere. And, you know, you draw what you see. And I just like the aesthetics of subways and stuff. I applied for a job at the Newark Star-Ledger, which was in Newark, New Jersey, which is like just pretty much the shittiest city in the U.S. And I was so disappointed not to get it because it's so shitty. I wanted to be surrounded and immersed with that. Um, And I would have loved it. And to this day, it just bums me out. I think that there is a... um, a lot of people who just don't like that drawing. And I have to say, one of my big regrets is that I draw that way. Um, it's my brand now, and I can't really change it. But I think like the cute approach is far more subversive. If you can draw in a really cute, appealing way that you know dr- gets the crowds into the theater, and then you come out and you smack them in the face, that's more dangerous. A lot of people will look at my drawing and just be like, I, can't, I don't like the way he draws, and, and they don't even give my work a chance. Nashko, um... The conflict that you're currently embroiled in, it, it seems to be so much a generational conflict, not just with the taboos and the mores of Japan, but it seems like just in what we were talking about before and uh, the misunderstanding of technology, 
you bring up this double standard where there's like like a Shinto festival for the phallus, but you can't just show a vagina, uh, even in a completely non-sexual context, it's forbidden. Uh, I, I wonder if we can't, you know, as we look at all these trends of, of the press declining around the world of this generational conflict, which though it's so far away feels very familiar here, what role and what place do you think subversive drawings and cartoons are going to play and, and is it going to be online? Where is this stuff going to play out? Online, I feel like you, you, there's much of a higher chance of you speaking to the choir and these very public forums where everyone got together and read a newspaper and, and you could scandalize people or, or it felt like you had to respond because everyone's reading it as they disappear. Where do you see the dangerous cartoons appearing uh, from now on? You know someone has to translate all that, right? <laughs> Brevity is not my thing. <laughs> I was wondering why this panel was scheduled to be two hours. <laughs> Most of that's just me asking questions. <laughs> like in the 80s, there were a lot more comics that were like making fun of, you know, society at large. Uh, but then um, in the 90s, when we get into like the Koizumi administration, uh, you see a lot of that going away. Like uh, there used to be like comedy shows on TV that would you know poke fun at the government or you know society. But then the country started to get really serious with Koizumi, and so like laughing like things that we were laughing at, it started to feel like you weren't allowed to do that anymore. And even online, like making fun of people or making fun of you know those kind of targets is not really acceptable. That's kind of where we are. You know, on TV, you can't really have that kind of comedy anymore. And then, you know, the major publishers and stuff really pull back from that sort of thing. So really, at this point, it's really a kind of an individual level that you have to get out there and, and make those kinds of comics. I think there's the opportunity to have even more dangerous comics. Like, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> like newspapers, for how dangerous the cartoons could be, uh, still were restricted by the people that kind of ran the newspapers. But there, there aren't those restrictions now. I mean, there, there very well may come restrictions in the forms of like lawsuits and things like that. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've got a weird kind of hopeful streak in terms of like kind of online storytelling, in terms of kind of like dangerous content. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a space for um, subversive drawings and satire, um, and obviously, it's on. Yeah, it's on. It's going to be online. I mean, the the question is, you know, if a outrageously uh, insightful and interesting cartoon falls in the woods, does it? Does anybody give a shit? And I think the answer is no. Um, you know, there's lots of really brilliant work being read by you know cool hipstery smart people, but it's not making that broad cultural impact uh, that's just because of the death of mass media and the splintering of, of everybody reading you know their own Twitter and Facebook uh, feeds that you know where in which they follow people who share their exact political and cultural ideology that's the real problem um, I think we're just not talking to each other as a society anymore I mean you know I was talking to a friend recently about one of the differences between like Europe and, and the US in, you know in the US we don't even agree on the same facts like climate change exists uh, you know we don't we don't agree on that as if you're a Democrat or Republican um, you know in, in Europe everyone agrees that it it's exists the only question is whether anything should be done about it and if so what at least they can have a discussion they can have a political debate we can't even have politics because we can't even define terms do you think like the viral video is sort of the new editorial cartoon? You see these things that 
I guess it's debatable how much they break out of people's ideological bubbles. You start, you see things that support your beliefs more than you see things that don't. And it's always surprising me to learn that, you know, that Trump supporters have their own funny videos. And, yeah. and there is that whole other world. Uh, and, and, you know, the algorithm is just giving me what I want, I guess. But it, it also seems to play the same role as, like, let's laugh about current events. And it's usually through some short clip that's auto-playing on Facebook. Sure. Or, or memes, uh, obviously. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the level of self curation in terms of media consumption is uh, is definitely kind of a dangerous thing. Like one of the things that I kind of miss from the newspaper, even though like each newspaper obviously had their slant. Like you open up a newspaper and you're being presented with a bunch of things that you wouldn't necessarily seek out online. Like even if I'm you know reading Ziggy or whatever, you know I'm, I'm still exposing myself to peanuts. <laughs> you, know? I, you know, but but like it's a it's a rich tapestry. There's, yeah, exactly. Well, there's serendipity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. That's where you can go to support us. This show is produced by Katie Jensen. Thank you very much to the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Thank you to the staff here at the Pilot. Thank you to our panelists from around the world. And thank you to the live audience. If you like what we do, please support us. <laughs>